folks, do you love movies? The good ones, even the bad ones everyone told you not to like. It sounds like Super Yaki is the place for you. The team at Super Yaki loves movies, so much so that they've dedicated every waking moment of their life to bringing you top quality merchandise to showcase your love for them. From super soft t-shirts celebrating the 20th anniversary of cinematic masterpiece Josie and the Pussycats, to comfy sweatshirts made for the brave members of the Movies by Yourself Club. They even have pins of some of your favorite directors like Sofia Coppola and Jordan Peele. Super Yaki joyously brings you tangible love letters to movies and filmmakers that you can wear with pride. Plus, the team at Super Yaki screen prints all their apparel using eco-friendly 100% water-based inks and ships with compostable poly mailers for an environmentally friendly alternative to online shopping. And as a special gift to you, listeners can save 10% on their order with code SUPERSKYTALKERS, all caps, no spaces, at checkout. If the spirit moves you, find them at superyaki.com. Let's watch more movies. Justina Ireland's Out of the Shadows takes readers through a plot by the Nile to control hyperspace and thwart the Jedi at every turn. In this episode, we break down the state of the galaxy in the latest addition to the High Republic era. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to another book discussion where we are talking all about Out of the Shadows by Justina Ireland. And I am super pumped to talk about this book. I am too. I read it like a long time before Caitlin read it. <laughs> so I've been like sitting on this for a long time to the point where every time Caitlin and I would talk about the High Republic, I would be like, wait till you read Out of the Shadows, sort of like <laughs> rubbing my hands together like, yes. It's so, coming. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like really excited because I think it's fair to say like this isn't a spoiler or anything that we really liked this book, right? I think we both really enjoyed this one. The YA books, they really do it for me. <laughs> with Star Wars. <laughs> and yeah, there's a lot here. For me, I felt like this book was really juicy and I can't wait to talk about it. But I also wanted to address the fact that it's been a while since we've done a podcast. So thank you for your patience with us. And I hope you enjoyed our Kenobi series since that was the last thing we released. And, you know, after doing week to week episodes on the Bad Batch and then also other episodes and everything, I moved like we needed a little bit of a break. And yeah, so thanks for waiting with us and for bearing with us. I obviously really, really appreciate it. Um, but we're back. Yay, we're back. Yeah, and I could not think of a better welcome back episode than The High Republic and Out of the Shadows. <laughs> Definitely not a spoiler on our spoiler discussion to say that we liked it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's, this is a spoiler-filled discussion, obviously. <laughs> as, our as book discussions are. are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, we talked about in our last uh, In the Rising Storm discussion about our, our reading habits, right, and how you are totally cool to read on the digital copies that come out and I just I retain nothing that way or I retain very little not to the point where I would have a good fruitful discussion <laughs> about it afterwards so I always wait for the book but I and I'm a slow reader but I do think that it's nice in a way because hopefully a lot of you had have time to read the book as well and so this isn't there's certainly something to be said for releasing an episode reviewing like a tv show or something the day it drops and even a book the day it drops especially like if you're a podcast doing interviews and stuff like that. But um, a lot of people probably haven't had a chance to read it yet. So I do think there is something worthwhile to, you know, a little bit of delayed gratification. So 
I hope Agreed. it was worth the wait because I got to say, I'm going to say this now. I think this is my new favorite of the High Republic. Wow. Yeah, I think wow. it's number one. It's number one for me. I don't think it's number one. It is number one for me. Wow. I don't think I'm prepared to make that decision yet, <laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> so, Out of what we have so far? I think this is probably the one I enjoyed reading the most, but I don't know if it's my favorite yet. So mm. I think those are two very big distinctions. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I think this is my favorite one that I've read so far. And I don't know if it's because it feels like a sequel to Into the Dark and other entries that we've had in the High Republic. Like it felt like this was within like the spider web of it all. Like this was like right in the center of everything that we've been following from the comics to the books to like the adult novels to the audio dramas. Like everything was like all coming together for me in this book. And it felt like really rewarding to read it as a fan of the High Republic. But I don't know if I can make a hardline decision yet about my favorite so far. So yeah. <laughs> I feel like this is if you track with most of our episodes, I feel like you get way too much information like you can follow a lot of our personalities in Star Wars and how they like reflect into our everyday lives as well, like who we are outside of the podcast. I'm thinking about our bad batch discussions and how I was like this is my favorite every week and you're like I can't make that call yet. <laughs> <laughs> and didn't you say that I think the finale is going to be my favorite and it was every single week on we're, like, yeah. <laughs> we're like oh yeah this has moved into like my top three of the season you're like yeah I can't do that I can't I can't make that decision <laughs> <laughs> it's too tough of a decision I don't know it's not that I put the same weight on books and things like that like I do with ranking the Star Wars films which like Caitlin and I don't do we don't like to do that really so I sort of feel like I'm doing the same thing for other like properties sort of <laughs> where I'm like I can't make that decision because it's such a big one because ranking is like so intense but like it's not that intense you know it's not that big of a deal to rank the four major high republic well there's more there's more than that novels but the ones but the that we ones talked that about we've on covered, the show yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah I think I think it's an interesting discussion the ranking because like we certainly used to do that like back a yeah. long time ago and it was like we moved away from that Honestly, because of like the discourse that came out of ranking, because it's like at the end of the day, even if I say that this is my favorite and like if I'm ranking out of nine or six at the time, no matter what I put a six and one, it's going to make it seem like I don't like number one when yeah, I, or I don't like I number that. six when like that's not actually the case. Like I enjoy them all. This yeah. is the one I enjoy most. So I kind of feel like to say ranking, it's more like, yeah, here's my personal top two, three, five, whatever it is. Or I know now we usually talk about like our favorites from each trilogy, as opposed to like ranking the films mm -hmm. when it comes to the, the movies anyway. But yeah, it's an interesting discussion. Yeah. yeah. I can't wait to, to track with this for the next couple of years and see if you ever make a decision on your favorites. We're, we're not even really at a phase one. Like there's all these yeah. phases. I think it was the last episode when we talked about Rising Storm. I was like, oh, I didn't realize that what we had like last January wasn't the end of phase one. Like, I, I don't know. I got confused. Like, we're yeah. still in phase one of the High Republic. We're going to have so many books. And honestly, like, I'm still like catching up. Okay. <laughs> so, it is a lot. <laughs> so much. But I don't want to be not grateful for the fact that we have all this amazing new, like fresh Star Wars content. It's amazing. I love it all. But man, I have a lot to catch up on. And that's great. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That like when I go on a trip, I can read through a ton of comics that I'm really behind on because boy, am I behind on comics. Oh my God. <laughs> but yeah. I think that, I don't know, it's it's so great. But yeah, it's it's happening fast. So like, I didn't realize that this wasn't like 
phase two. It's actually like wave two within – I think one. I already said this. Yeah. Yeah. But regardless, like let's keep them coming. It'll be interesting to rank everything within phase one once that's done. Like I'm prepared to do that, Caitlin. We can do that. Okay. All right. We'll see. <laughs> okay. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, there is so much content that comes out of the higher public and we've talked about this before in our earlier discussions of like, one, it can be hard to keep up because there is so much. And like, I think something we we comment on a lot with the higher public is just the sheer number of characters can be a lot to keep up with. But I think that the whole initiative behind the higher public is so fun. Like just in general, like it's being treated like when I say it's being treated like a franchise, it's almost like a brand new Star Wars trilogy, like like a whole, like, you know, it's called, like the art department and the concepts and they, they, you know, they had like the storyboard meetings. Like it really feels like it was given like a film production for book series, which I think is so cool. And I think I really appreciate that about the higher public, even as I do sometimes have to remind myself who certain characters are <laughs> as we're going through it. But I think it's so fun. And yeah, as of right now, I'm, I'm totally prepared to say out of the shadows is my favorite. So Awesome. Let's dive into talking about it. So in part one, we're going to be giving our first impressions. Part two, we're going to be talking about deeper themes. In part three, we are going to give each other quotes and analyze them. So without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first. Okay, so welcome to part one, where we are talking all about first impressions. So Charlotte, it has been a little while since you initially read Out of the Shadows, but what did you think of it? How does it fit into the larger higher public so far? I really, really enjoyed this book. I read this right after I finished The Rising Storm, like almost immediately after, and it was, for me, a really good transition to go from like high action, lots going on, an adult novel that was like really long and really packed with like a lot of a lot of stuff that happened, and I felt like this was sort of a return to characters that I already knew, and I was really excited about that because I think in our Rising Storm discussion, we talked about how there was a lot going on, right? And yeah. I think there's a lot going on in this book too. I, I just think that's a mainstay for the High Republic at this point. Like there's a lot of characters and I'm still getting familiar with them, but this was the first time I felt like, oh yeah, I'm actually I'm pretty familiar with these characters at this point. I'm familiar with Wreath. I'm familiar with Comac. I'm familiar with Vern, Vernestra, and Imri. Like, I know them because I've read the comics and I've read different books and things like that. So I was excited to see them again. And it reminded me a little bit of, like, you know how when Endgame and, like, other Avengers movies came out, there was all this discussion online about how it's different to witness your favorite characters be written by people who didn't write their origin stories. Yeah. I don't know. I felt like I feel like that a little bit sometimes with the High Republic where it's like but it's not it's not a weirdness per se. It's a oh it's like I can't wait to see their take on this character. Yeah. And I feel like that with Justina Ireland. I really enjoyed her writing in this. I thought that she had a lot of thoughtful things to say. I really enjoyed the like socioeconomic levels that went into this book and all the different characters. And I felt like this book was different enough from Into the Dark, but like similar in that it felt like a sequel to Into the Dark too. Not to go on a tangent here, but I'm kind of fascinated by the fact like that the High Republic exists now. And I don't know how to like word this properly, but like the very fact that I'm introduced to like almost a hundred new characters and I understand the time period and everything that we're in and I'm consuming 
this piece of media, a young adult novel, with characters that are spanning all different types of mediums. And I can still like enjoy this story as an individual story. But like, I have this sort of knowledge from like the transmedia experience that you get from the High Republic. I, 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 I know that's like weird to say, but I'm sort of amazed by it all. And it sort of hurts my brain to even think about. I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) No, it, it totally does. I really liked Out of the Shadows, obviously. I think for me, it feels like the biggest payoff for having kind of and I haven't read everything from uh, the High Republic era you don't have to to enjoy it exactly I've not been keeping up with the comics like I've read some of them but I haven't read all of them I haven't read A Test of Courage yet so Vern was a new character for me I don't know if she's been mentioned but like she was the main character of A Test of Courage which I haven't read yet so she was a new introduction for me here but I don't know it felt like I had finally, like, I'm finally waist deep in the High Republic. (laughs) And so it's like, I have, like, I'm acclimated. Maybe that's, like, really what we've been talking about here with, like, keeping up with characters and, like, just how much is going on in all of this. Because it's like, we recognize these terms. We recognize these kinds of foundations of, you know, the Jedi, the Republic, Coruscant, hyperspace. But seeing it in this time period, while, you know, it's still Coruscant, it's a completely different time and there is a completely different kind of structure and view of the galaxy in the higher public era and so it is kind of like I'm finally waist deep in it like it's not you know like when you get in the pool and like it's cold when it like goes past your stomach and stuff like that and it's like oh what's going on it's like it's finally not cold anymore (laughs) and like (laughs) when there are other characters that are kind of referenced in passing throughout out of the shadows it was you know it was the the leo meme of I know him like I know what you're talking about. Like, I get it. I understood that <laughs> reference. Um, and this is the first book that I've really, like, really kind of felt that, like, felt confident, I guess. This may be a weird way to describe it, but, like, confidence in understanding how people, not even, like, recognizing names, but, like, how people fit together and, like, their relationships to each other. And so I think that felt... I was like, I got it. I'm like, I'm here now. I got it. And I think that really aided in the enjoyability of Out of the Shadows for me, feeling like I had a good orientation of what was going on. And that's probably just due to the fact that this is now, you know, whatever the fifth, sixth, fourth book that we've read from the High Republic, you know, it was bound to happen in one of these books (laughs) where I'd finally remember who the majority of the characters are. (laughs) But... I was super excited to see Wreath in this book. I love him. And I loved how he was in this book, but he didn't, like, he didn't take over the story, you know? Like, he, like, this is Syl and Vern's story. This is not Wreath's story, but he's certainly a, a major player in it, right? I don't know. I just think that, yeah, it's cool how all of these characters get weaved in and out. And I do think that Out of the Shadows really kind of feels like the linchpin of what we've been leading to so far throughout the High Republic. Like it really does kind of feel like this story is kind of all these different plots kind of intersecting in the fact that, oh, now we know what's going on. Like everything with hyperspace and Mari Santeca dying and the Jedi believing that Lorna D is the eye of the Nile. Like these are kind of big plot points that were interspersed throughout the other stories so far. And to kind of see them all come together, it really feels like this is going to open a lot of eyes in the higher public about what is going on and the things that are learned by both the audience and the characters from Out of the Shadows is really going to push some things forward 
moving into the rest of wave two of phase one and then into wave (laughs) one of phase two and all of that good stuff. Yeah, I think that something that really surprised me about this book was the punches that it pulled, (laughs) that like big galaxy building and changing things happened in it. Like I did not expect this to be Mari Santeca's end. First off, I thought we were going to see Mari in a lot more pieces of media. So no, she gone. I was surprised. Yeah, she's gone. I was, she's I was gone. surprised. And like also I felt like this book dropped a lot of like nuggets and it just it was so interesting. Like you mentioned the fact that our Republic thinks that Lorna D's the head of the Nile. Like all these like weird things that I just didn't expect this book to drop. I don't know. I think that back to my earlier point about like being amazed by like the transmedia experience, I was like literally fascinated by the fact that people consider the adult books to be like the essential reading for the High Republic. But if you miss the young adult books, I'm like, you're missing huge pieces. <laughs> huge. Yeah. And I, I'm interested to see how they discuss this in other books that doesn't feel like a synopsis of this one, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And how it comes up and things like that, like the showing don't tell vibe. Yeah. It's that's something to track later in the future. But I, I was like astounded when I was flipping through the pages. I don't know. There's so many things in this book that really like threw me on my head. Number one, that Sill's mom was alive, that she oh all these like that was like first off, that's galaxy changing. The fact that's that true. by the end she has her own lab and everything. Mari's dead, but she exists. So it's like what now? We went from like four C really mad scientist vibes to well, I guess we're continuing the mad scientist vibes mm. with Mari into Sill's mom, like Chansey being like watched and having Nan on her side. Oh my gosh, there's just so many things that happen. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like something you said earlier is about like how this book like how does it become exposition for other books in the future? Because there is so much important stuff that happens in Out of the Shadows. And I just wanted to comment that I think that must be a real challenge for the higher public overall, because mm-hmm. I think they've kind of marketed that certain books can stand alone. And it's just like anything with Star Wars related, like the more that you read, the more that you're immersed in kind of everything that's going on, the more you're going to get out of it. Like, you know how so there are a ton of people that just watch the Siege of Mandalore from the Clone Wars and like that's it and they still enjoyed it right and it was like great but for us who have like and so many other people that have followed along it becomes that much more meaningful but I think that must be even harder to do with a book series or a book initiative publishing initiative like the higher public because you do have to kind of give these tidbits of like you know Vernestra meeting Wreath for the first time it's like if you didn't read Into the Dark all right how do you convey Wreath's personality in a chapter or a paragraph or kind of catch up on what he's been doing without bogging a story down, especially because like, as we've mentioned, there are a lot of characters. And I think that all things considered, the higher public is all the authors have done a really great job of that. One of the things that I have loved throughout the higher public, and that is especially brought to the forefront in Out of the Shadows is this whole thing of hyperspace and like the prospectors, the exploration, the graphs versus the Santecas. I just find this whole thing 
so cool and fun and like very Western vibes, but in space and like exploration. And it just feels so ripe for storytelling. And I got to say that like the Grafs versus the Santecas felt a little, you know, Capulets versus the Montagues and like two houses, both alike in dignity. And, you know, they mentioned in, in the book that there were hollows, like hollow TV shows that were made out of the Grafs and Santecas. And I just think that's <laughs> so cool. And the fact that like, This is still ongoing. I just think that the whole discussion of hyperspace and, you know, hyperspace lanes and where they came from and how people mapped them in the first place, I think it's so cool. It's so interesting. Like, there are always stories and there's always this fascination around exploration. And we see that a lot throughout history, obviously, with like uncharted territories. And there are all these kinds of stories and stuff. And to see it kind of put into space, into the Star Wars world, I think is really cool because it's something that's always kind of been understood that, yeah, they travel through hyperspace. And you think that that's just something they've been able to do for forever. But Someone had to do it first. And I think it's cool. And of course, to then wrap up something that is very kind of sci-fi of traveling through space and then to wrap it up with like, oh, yeah, well, like we own these lanes. But then this government body of the of the Republic is like, we're going to make those public use. (laughs) And like, what does that mean? Like, I think that's just a cool kind of like to put those two together, something that is very political with the Republic. And, you know, it's like opening up a new highway and we're going to put it here and this is where it's going. And, oh, you've mapped this road before, right? Well, like, we're going to take over it now and like be in charge of policing it, maintaining it, whatever it is you have to do for hyperspace. I don't really know. Um, (laughs) But I think it's a really cool tidbit that is kind of continually being brought to the forefront in the High Republic of who is controlling hyperspace, how does hyperspace even work, and who owns it. And this like kind of movement of power between the graphs, the Santecas, the Nile, and the Republic kind of all comes back to hyperspace. And I think it was in Light of the Jedi initially is when we kind of started this conversation of, I think Chancellor So was talking about, I'm not going to remember this exactly, but like extending hyperspace lanes to the outer rim. And this is when we Mm -hmm. started having this conversation of like, okay, why is that called the outer rim? And like that way that she and the whole core worlds and Coruscant talk about where these hyperspace lanes are being extended to like they get to be the core that's the outer rim simply because of transportation and I don't know I think it's really interesting and I would love to see a story from the high republic that is kind of even more explicitly focused on this topic because I think it's really cool listeners might remember that I had a little bit of a concern with I'm with you I like the exploratory nature I think that this story with exploring hyperspace, which is something I just never really thought about the like physics or the political intrigue of it all. Like I just hadn't thought about it before. I bet it has come up in other places in Star Wars, probably in Legends. But for me, this is like brand new territory, you know? And I feel like with charting new lands, quote unquote, some might remember that I had some concerns about like, how are we going to talk about like the colonialism of it all with regards to the High Republic and like, how is that going to deal with with things? But I felt like this book, and I mentioned this earlier in the episode, but I felt like this book really dove into what you're talking about, Caitlin, about like when you have two leading factions, the Graphs and the Santecas, and like, how does that like reverberate through history? How does that create all these problems that need to be solved? And these politicians who you know, say they're doing the want to fight the good fight, but then they make some questionable decisions. And I felt like this book was really diving into that in a really good way 
that it makes me encouraged for the future of the conversations of what I was referring to, just because I felt like that wasn't really going to be addressed. And I do think it will be addressed even more than it was, I guess, in this book, which wasn't that much. I just feel like you're right with the fact that there's like so much that goes into like what it is to like put a highway through the galaxy and like what does that mean? And all these different questions and everything, like it, it's only gonna like bubble up to the top more and more with each installment into the High Republic. So I'm excited for that to continue to be perhaps in the background of the main plots of like the violent destruction that happens in every single book, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that we spent more time. I mean, you know, I as you guys know, I'm a historian and I work in the transportation industry. So this is something that I am thinking about a lot actually <laughs> is roads and like where they go. But I think it's so interesting because once you start studying like the history of preservation and like historic preservation, like it comes back to transportation. Like the biggest origin story for preservation in the United States anyway is tied to the transportation industry and like the destruction of towns and stuff at the expense of roads and interstate roads and things like that. So I think this is not new, right? I do think though that the higher public still needs to do a lot better job of talking about this colonialism of the core world and the republic. And we didn't really spend a lot of time like with the Republic per se in this book of like Chancellor So mm -hmm. and and all of that, you know, like the rising storm, it was the Republic fair, you know, like we were we were really down with Chancellor So. And we still only got kind of a mention of that. I think from the Torgudas, if I'm remembering correctly. The Torgudas were the ones I can't remember the conversation, but I think the Queen or one of her guards or aides or something said something to Chancellor So along the lines of like, like you call it the the outer rim. We like that's our core, you know, and that, that was it was like a very pointed statement. But still, I think that there should be more of that because it's very clear the kind of parallel that's being drawn, but it's not talked about as much. And perhaps it's because like these characters don't really realize that they're doing it. And that will come up more later down the line. But yeah, it's a lot of it is tied to transportation and transportation equals access, whatever it is. Right. And so people having access to different parts of the galaxy, wanting to keep that access for themselves, greedy, business, mining, all of that stuff we've seen in other iterations of Star Wars. And it's really like the maps are literally being drawn right now in the High Republic era. And I think that's, it's really interesting. It's cool. And I'd like to see more of it. And I also want to see the hollows for the graphs and the Santecas. Me too. You know, so it's cool. so funny because... I find that the High Republic often references like romance hollows like so much. They it's do, in every yeah. single book and I'm here for it. Like mm -hmm. I'm all for it, but I feel like we've never had this sort of like it seems like anytime romance is mentioned it's like yeah, I've seen the hollows. Like don't you watch the hollows? <laughs> I watched that like, one. That's amazing that that exists in the High Republic era. I love this so much. This is like okay, this is going to be a throwback to a conversation that we had a while ago on the show but in our anniversary special we were talking about the calrissian chronicles and the lando show and how we wanted like an in-universe podcast from yes. lando and I, now i want the in-universe hollows from the high republic era about the graphs and the santecas 
maybe like a, a novel version of The Hollow. <laughs> I, I'd be down for any sort of like romance novel type right. vibe for Star Wars. Like we need that. The fact that it's referenced, it means it's canon. So right. Yeah. Wouldn't it be cool too if it was if it was just like a YouTube series kind of thing? You know, like yes. I think you know, the the High Republic like the whole thing, right? Like the creation of it is so cool and unique. Like you could totally like it would not be strange to include this kind of very minimal like video component to it too. Or even like a comic I think would be really awesome for the hollows, the romance hollows. Okay. So let's talk about our favorite character moments. So I think something that was really cool about this book was just as we are with YA, we got a lot of I felt like we got so many different perspectives and perspectives that I really wanted to see. Anytime I was like, oh, I would really like to get into the head of X character, I would flip the page and that's exactly what what character we were focusing on in this scene. And I just really appreciated that about Justina's writing. I felt like she knew exactly what I wanted and delivered, you know? So I want to talk about how Vernestra is like my new favorite Jedi character. (laughs) I love her and her struggles and... I think she is so cool that she, number one, has a light whip. That's the coolest thing I've ever heard in my entire life, okay? (laughs) Number two, I think that her struggles of, like, being a protege and, like, a very young – not necessarily a protege. I don't know if I can say that, but, like, being a very young Jedi Knight and, like, that separating her, I thought that was – is just such an interesting concept and I'm so happy that we get to explore it in the High Republic. I sort of feel like she might be flying too close to the sun in a lot of ways. Like her, some of her conversations that she had with Comac in this book, I was like, oh boy, I wonder if we're leading to a point where Vernestra is going to be faced with a decision to turn to the dark side. And I felt like we got a little bit close to that in this book. Like a lot of temptation was happening, a lot of weirdness, a lot of special powers, you know? And I just wanted to say that I think that because she's under so much pressure the pressure she puts on herself the pressure that just like comes from the outside for her I wouldn't be surprised I guess I would be surprised because it would be done really well because the High Republic books are done really well but I it would be interesting if they explored that option for her to turn to the dark side later and I don't I don't know I feel like sometimes I don't necessarily relate to the Jedi characters because I don't find them because sometimes I find them like cardboardy or like very wise and like that's just not who I relate to. But I found myself relating to I thought to you were going to say that's not who I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just felt like – I don't know. Maybe I am cardboardy. Who knows? But I, I just feel like sometimes there's like not a lot of juice or like meat around like a character who's just like a really good Jedi. But here we have with Vernestra, we have someone who is a really good Jedi but also has a lot of like internal struggles and – just a lot of thoughts (laughs) and a lot of secrets that she's keeping, which I think is really interesting. And I love that. I love stuff like that. I think it's so interesting you say that because I feel like in every book for the High Republic, we've been like, and who is going to fall to the dark side today? We're like just waiting for it. But it's interesting because I really don't see Vernestra as like, she wouldn't even enter into the possibilities for me. Oh my God. But do you think that like makes it even more I guess I mean it certainly would be more shocking if it ended up being her but like I don't see it for her this is because I think this is kind of thing we'll talk about later but I think that Justina in this book had so many 
like she raised so many good points about like the Jedi, like her commentary on the Jedi, I found to be some of the most compelling, honestly, that we've had in -hmm. Star Wars, like through these characters. And I think what we've seen throughout the higher public is whenever we're in these YA books, I feel like we see our younger characters really kind of wrestling with, okay, what is the force? What are the Jedi? What are we doing? What's my purpose? And I feel like the more they have room to do that, the better off they are in the long run. Because sometimes I think the, you know, with anything, like with older Jedi, no matter who you are, but like for the Jedi in this case, the longer they're in something, the harder it is to kind of, I guess, like see your way out or see when there's a misstep or see when you've been clouded by the dark side or temptation or something like that. Because I think it's interesting that we get, we get like some tidbits throughout this book of Vernestra specifically like hiding things from the Jedi and everyone is kind of hiding things from their master or from their friends when it comes to the Jedi, as far as like special abilities, their thoughts about the force, whatever it is. But I kind of think in some ways that's a good thing, especially for our characters like Vernestra and Wreath and these like internal monologues that they have and that that will be what saves them in the end, like almost the ability to step away if need be, like they would be able to do that. I don't know if they will or if they would ever need to, but I don't know, like there's a quote later on from, I'll just read it now from Reese, this conversation. It happens on page 263 and Comac and Reese are talking and Comac says, Stellan always does what's best for the order. Reese wanted to ask, what about what's best for the force? But he had a feeling he would not like the answer to that question. And I think it's so important that like Reith is recognizing that these are separate questions, like what's best for the order and what's best for the force. Like those are different. And I feel like Vernestra is kind of often in this book going through this internal monologue of like, all right, who am I? When am I following the rules of the Jedi by being like overtly concerned about Imri and his abilities versus and like wanting to, you know, like have him talk to people about it versus not telling anyone about my own visions and what they could mean. And especially at the end with what happens with Mari Santeca. I don't know. I just I think it's I'm not really coming to a good conclusion here. But for some reason, Vernestra is not the person I see falling to the dark side. So I think it's cool that you think she could be. I guess we'll find out someday. Someday. (laughs) Someone's got to fall to the dark side. (laughs) One thing that you mentioned, I just thought, again, just to add to like, the compelling nature that is Vernestra, I found it pretty compelling that she felt that she had to bottle up all of her emotions, even around her Padawan, who is like so sensitive to emotions. I think that detail of Imri is so interesting and just, again, such a good character and someone who I just deeply feel for (laughs) as as much as I think that he would also deeply feel for me, you know? (laughs) And I, I, I thought that the dynamics that were presented in this book I find in the High Republic, there are so many characters, right? We talk about that all the time. There's so many characters and sometimes it's hard to keep track of them. But I felt like in this book that the characters, whenever they were together, the dynamics that were presented were so compelling because they each each conversation kind of showed something about the other character. And I felt like it was yeah. so well done. I just really appreciated that. Like bringing Wreath into this story – you know, he wasn't really in this book that much, like if we're being honest, right? Like he wasn't – Yeah. He, he wasn't a main character. But every time he was with the other characters, it was clear how much of a different Jedi he was from Vernestra. 
And But then what they had in common kind of showed their differences even more. And then it was interesting to continue to track his progress now that he's with Comac as his Padawan and things like that. I, I just found a lot of the – that's what I love about the YA books is that just diving into those character dynamics. And I felt like, again, Justina Ireland did a really, really good job. Yeah, I think she did great. Yeah, I think Vernestra, she goes through a lot and she – I, th- I don't think it can be understated, like, her being in this, like, weird position of being a Jedi Knight and a master, but then her, you know, essentially colleague, classmate, Reith, is still a Padawan. And what's cool is that they all talk about it, or they're, they're all thinking about it. <laughs> like, it's unsaid, but Reith is like, this is kind of weird, and Vanessa's like, this is kind of weird. <laughs> and I think it's cool <laughs> and good. Because you're right, like, there are so many interesting dynamics that are kind of always being... And because these characters are kind of, they get based on, because of the adventure, the journey that they have in this book, they're all kind of thrown into these different combinations. Like, it's Vernestra and Reith for a while, then it's Silvestri and Vernestra, and then we have Silvestri and Jordana. Jordana. It's like, I feel like I'm saying these names out loud for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) I I said Jordana in my head, but it might be Jordana. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know. Star Wars doesn't know either. That's the thing that it's always do. brings me comfort with the pronunciation of things oh is gosh. that on screen with the Marchion, Marchion, oh. the oh. <laughs> the Han, Han, but- <laughs> Leah, Leia, Falcon, Falcon. It's it never ends. So the, it's okay. The thing is though <laughs> is that I could have sworn, like hand to God, that there was a tweet from there was there was Soul that was from like, Charles Soul. It is yes. Marchion, and then I plug in t- uh, Tempest Runner and they say Marchion Rose and wait <laughs> no no I think they got it wrong Mark Thompson got it wrong <laughs> but then they've also got they say the Nile differently too and oh my Runner. no that's wrong Nile Hill <laughs> sorry but that's wrong no one says Nile Hillism it's just it's incorrect <laughs> okay <laughs> that is incorrect. yeah I love that we were like it doesn't matter except <laughs> except it does in- matter <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah then Sylvester and Jordana have this great dynamic and Sylvester of course is very uh, suspicious of the not suspicious she's wary of the Jedi she thinks a lot about who they are in the galaxy and what they should mean and what she actually sees them to mean and how those two don't always meet like reality doesn't meet with what she wants them to be in her head which I think is really great too and then of course we have Jordana and her whole relationship as a Santeca with the Graphs was his name Xylan there's just yeah. a lot of really great dynamics in here. One of the other things I wanted to mention about Vernestra is that if she appears to be asexual or aromantic, which I think we've had other characters in Star Wars books that have, I don't think they've outright said that they're asexual or aromantic, but they've been inferred that they are, which I think is really great because obviously having more types of gender and sexuality representation in Star Wars is great. And I think it works really well, especially because we've had so many of these characters kind of comment on their like love lives. And so mm-hmm. it made sense to have Vernestra comment on her own or rather that that's not something she, you know, particularly wants. Um, and she values relationships, but not in that sense. And like, 
And then, of course, to have Wreath on the other end who kind of thinks that he has a crush on her but isn't really sure. I think it's important to see how all – because we've heard all these Padawans really, like Jedi talking about when they were Padawans and, you know, the experimenting that they did, who they hooked up with, who they had crushes on or, you know, like innocent kisses and that kind of stuff. And so I think it was good to see that there are also examples of Jedi, of Padawans in the galaxy who that's not – that's not something that is for them necessarily. And so I really liked this quote that the way that Justina described it for Vanessa on page 243, where she wrote for Vanessa, this was a difficult conversation for her because she never once had any of those feelings, romantic feelings, regardless of the people she met. She could tell when someone was attractive and there were people she liked more than others, but she had never felt the push-pull of attraction so many other Padawans did when they came of age. She supposed that it made it made it easier for her, but that did not mean Emery's path would be as smooth. So yeah, I just think that's great to have that for Vanessa and for her character development too. Totally. I'm pretty sure that Justina Ireland has written other asexual, aromantic stories, I think in her book Dread Nation. I remember our friend Shannon mentioning that and her really enjoying that. So yeah, so I'm really, it's awesome. I will say on the other end is Wreath and Nan and how <laughs> I am obsessed with them. <laughs> I am too. I think, first off, I think that it's funny that Wreath has a lot of crushes Reith yeah. is just always like so confused. I feel like he's like whoever never knows. Of him, he's like, yeah, uh, you're cute. <laughs> yeah, just think he's just interested in things. Like that's part of him. So he's also interested in people, and then yeah. he just doesn't know what to do with that sort of energy. But yeah, I'm here for Reith and Nan. I think that's going to be a thing that keeps reoccurring because even Nan mentions yeah. it. You know, yeah. like she she even thinks about it, and it's like that that Jedi I saw on the Maxi system, a Maxine system, whatever. It's it's just good. I'm here for it. It's great. Let's Very continue good. it. I also I really like Nan as a character too. By the way, I think that she has only gotten more interesting. Yeah, and she wasn't. She isn't just the person that tricked Wreath before. She's like much more than that. And now has like a pretty large role in the state of the galaxy in terms of the Nile and like science. <laughs> so. Yeah. Like I mentioned in the beginning, I don't know. I feel like this is a thread that we're going to continue. It'll be interesting if it continues only in YA, but I'm here for it. She got a lot darker too, I think, than I kind of expected her to get. She often talked about, well, if I just kill him, it will be fine, (laughs) (laughs) but very seriously. (laughs) I think she has a line where she says that she's lived a hundred lifetimes in the past year and now I'm. I need a Nan book. Maybe we have a Nan centric book because Great. she's she's doing a lot of stuff and she's cool. She <laughs> I is. love the Nile. <laughs> yeah, I I didn't know that Wreath was going to be in this book, and I think I texted you like right when I got to that chapter, and I was like, "Oh my god, Wreath is back!" Like I love him, and I go, I "He's really, on the cover." And I feel him. He's on the cover. Is he? I took the cover yeah. off. I took the I take the jackets off my book when I read them. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's on the cover. <laughs> I took I took the jacket off and I annotate in my book. So I feel like I've just got a lot of strikes against me for certain people <laughs> reading this book. <laughs> or book readers in general. Okay, well, yeah, I take the dust jackets off right when I get the books because I don't want to ruin them, honestly. But for me, it just I don't know, it feels easier to read my book without the dust jackets. So To be honest, I didn't realize that that was him on the cover because I wasn't looking at the cover. But when his chapter came in, I annotated in the book, wow, OMG, I really hope Nan shows up. (laughs) And then the very next chapter, it was Nan. And I got really excited. 
So yeah, I do need that to happen. I think Nan is even even if nothing with Reef ever happens, I think that her whole role in the Nile and now with Chansey Yarrow is really cool, really devious, a little diabolical. And I'm kind of here for their team up, honestly, at the end of it. And then, of course, we have our last couple, which is the drama around Sylvester and Jordana, Jordana, however oh you gosh. refer to her. The drama of these exes, I love I, so much. Me too. Me too. First off, the cat of it all, too. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> just, just, <laughs> the, the pining, the longing, the anger, the, the angst in these cockpits when they're traveling through space i was like this is everything to me <laughs> i loved this so much i enjoyed the the angst of it from Sylvester's point of view of you know i asked jordana to come with me and she said no and now suddenly she went with these jedi you know and that kind of that betrayal i thought it was like, I really felt it. Like, I think the characterization of their relationship and the hurt, really, that's because we're mainly from Sylvester's point of view, I think, when it comes to their relationship. And I think her hurt over Jordana not picking Sylvester back when they were originally dating. I don't know. I, I really felt it. And so that, like, Sylvester wants to be with her, but it's like, I can't let that hurt back into my life. Like, what if she leaves me again? Or... You know, it's just like, I should be angry at you right now, but I just want to kiss you. Like, I just, I thought it was really good. And I was really glad that they had this happy ending, this reconciliation by the end of the book. And they're like on to their next adventure together. They deserved that. They, they deserved did. that. They really did. And we, we just deserve more romance in Star Wars. I know. I know. Because when we get it, it's like the best thing ever. So good, it's right? It's all anyone wants to talk about first off. <laughs> and it's just so good. You know, it's always great. I, I, I love it. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit about Imri because I think this is a really interesting character and one that I'm, again, surprised that we haven't really seen in terms of the Jedi because if you think about the – like if I could step back into whoever created Imri, I think it was someone in the comics who wrote the comics. The thought of creating a Jedi who is so sensitive to the Force that they're sort of overly stimulated by – everyone's emotions around them. I think this is something that I've thought about before. Like, I feel like this has been explored in fic before, but I think just the concept of this character is so good. And he's so empathetic. Like, I, I just really found myself feeling for him every time that he, like, we'd turn to him in the story and he would just be, like, sobbing over certain, you know, sad tales or things that were bothering another character or something that they were keeping privately. And I just find that so interesting just as an, another exploration of the force, because it's an, it's a form of, for me, I'm not sure if I would call it like uncontrolled, like the inability to, but I guess it is uncontrolled because I think Vernestra's huge struggle is to figure out how to combat, how to make things more comfortable for Emery, right? Because it's not comfortable to be able to like not be so overwhelmed in a crowd, not based off of the amount of people. Like, of course, that's like part of it, but like the ability to feel everyone's hopes, dreams, desires, <laughs> sob stories, all these things all at once. It's like another form of like force anxiety. I think that he was like a really good parallel of what anxiety feels like but like what what if you had anxiety and also special powers that man like manifested it so much more i don't know i felt like every time imri and vernestra were together like it's clear that 
she really struggles, I think, to be his master as much as she cares for him and everything. But I find their dynamic really interesting and I am sort of excited to see like what the next step with Emery is like once he understands how to curb the overwhelming nature of his like his abilities what comes next and like what sort of power can be unlocked because it sort of feels like if you can get a handle on like feeling everyone's emotions it feels like you might be able to completely run the world <laughs> if you can understand yeah. everything about everyone and like what everyone hopes and what everyone's fearful of it feels like you you're on the like on the cusp of like being the most powerful being <laughs> if you know what i mean it's interesting i i think that there's some conversations that happen in this book about his powers and things like that and his like his sensitivity to the force so uh, again, with the conversation about like the different dynamics, I, I like I mentioned, I think his dynamics with like every time he was in the room with another character, it was like, oh, what's going to happen? How is he going to react? What is Imri going to share about the dynamic that we're experiencing too? Which is something I appreciated as a reader because I was like, okay, so how do my how am I supposed to feel about this? Because Imri was also that sort of character for me that was like, you know, yeah, this is. This is sort of what's going on, if that makes sense. Yeah. What did you think of Emery, Caitlin? I really liked Emery. In my head when I was reading the book, he was always kind of standing a couple feet back from the group and like taking in their emotions and, and almost trying to create a buffer too, even though that's – I feel like that's not really how his abilities work. But I think that Emery and Vernestra's relationship, their their Padawan master relationship – like. Emery also read is very young to me in the book. And I think that was part of him like having to experience everyone's emotions, including his own. And he was at the Republic Fair too that day or they went there. And so he was kind of experiencing all of the emotions of everyone trapped and hurt and killed at the Republic Fair too, which, you know, that's a lot <laughs> for a, for anyone to go through and especially for a young kid. And I think they even talk about like, basically having therapy like Jedi therapists for different Jedi and how they've all been to the therapist or at least Emery has and I think Vanessa too. But I think that Emery brings up such like like you were saying like he has the ability to control the world and we've talked about this before in our in our conversations about the merit of the Jedi, right? And how you know the Jedi take children when they're very like babies when they're young and what are the ethics of that but at the end of the day too there's this other side of well it's not great to have these people with powers like the Jedi basically with no training and no structure no rules like that you get that in the wrong hands and that becomes a very powerful weapon basically and how in some ways it's like yeah, there are certainly downsides to Jedi taking children, taking babies, but there's also this other side too that has to be considered or talked about, thought through. And I think it's really interesting because I think we see throughout this book, like I mentioned earlier, like people hiding certain things, like Vanessa hiding her visions and Emery not wanting to have his abilities necessarily, not knowing how to use them ethically like when he asks like is this a dark side ability and there's kind of this fear from him that like he could be towing a line and then we hear Vanessa later on in the book talking about how a meditation in the cosmic force is actually kind of frowned upon by the jedi because you fall too far into the cosmic force and you're kind of trapped by it and i think it's interesting like 
the Jedi kind of always trying to walk this line with the living force and the cosmic force and like their morals and their role in the in the galaxy and with the Republic. Like they're always kind of trying to keep this balance of everything and they're bound to fall off the line. You know what I mean? And I think that we kind of see that kind of distilled in Emery and yeah, his abilities came in handy for them a couple of times, but also it's an invasion of privacy. And Vernestra tells him at one point, like people have to be allowed to feel what they're going to feel. And that's necessary too. So I don't know. I don't feel like I explained that very well, but I think there's like a lot of these like bigger Star Wars conversations about like Jedi's powers, how they wield them, their training, their views on abilities. All of it is kind of distilled into Emery and how Vernestra tries to like make a plan for him because she's his master and she cares about him. But there's also that other piece to it too of like by her continually saying like, oh, we need to get you help. You need to talk to someone. Like in some ways it kind of creates this shame over Emery's empathy. Yeah. Yeah, it totally does. Yeah, that's certainly not Vernestra's intention, but it's like you have to be careful with with that kind of conversation with someone who clearly does need help because it's not fair for Emery to be feeling the feelings of everyone. And it's also not right for him to be controlling people's emotions like he he did a couple of times throughout the book. But they're like it's sensitive right it's hard and like Vanessa is what she's 17 that's a lot to put on her shoulders meanwhile she's dealing with her own secrets that she doesn't feel like she can share with Emery she does share some of it with him later on I don't think all of it but she does eventually kind of tell him a little bit about what's going on I do hope we see more of him and you know would his powers ever be used for evil like would he be the one to follow the dark side I don't know again someone's got to fall <laughs> but yeah I I really I feel like I've kind of gone on a, a bit of a tangent here monologue but I am glad we had Emery in this book as a pretty big player especially with Renestra and how she was trying to make these grown-up decisions and to help him but maybe isn't doing it in the best way mm-hmm. for what Emery actually needs despite her good intentions Yeah, I think a lot about the Padme quote of all masters or mentors have a way of seeing more of our thought, our faults than we would like. It's the only way we grow. And I think a lot of the dynamics, back to the conversation of dynamics, oh my God, I keep bringing this up, but a lot of the dynamics in this book, in the High Republic in general, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talked about how it reveals a lot about the state of the Jedi and the questions that come up in these like Star Wars conversations about like the Jedi being peacekeepers and like what does that actually mean and what does using the force even mean what's good and evil what's the light side and what's the dark side how does one harness the cosmic force and the living force things like that I think are constantly being pushed and asked for within Star Wars and with like no clear answers to be honest and like maybe there shouldn't be a clear answer but I think that now, especially in this book, we have a couple of masters and apprentices that sort of represent different types of mentors and apprentices, right? I think that for me, I think we all are like big fans of Comac, right? Yeah. (laughs) I think that he's someone who approaches the force from a different perspective, one that I think Caitlin and I probably respect a lot. Like, And then we have have Renestra who is trying to figure it all out. The few times that Stellan has been in this book also, I think it's worth mentioning, he has had some like sort of 
I don't know. I never impact. Yeah, impact, but in a way that I was sort of uncomfortable with. Like some of his conversations that he had, like it felt like he was hiding things because he was hiding things from Vernestra, and I felt like he. I don't know. If he represents like a totally different mentor figure. He also represents a mentor, a master who is on the Jedi Council now and yes. has kind of been – remember, he's now the face of the Republic Fair and Absolutely. what happens. So it's like yeah. these things keeping in mind, it's like, oh, yeah. And and also, Vernestra is hiding stuff from him too. Yeah. So yep. It's, yep. It, it's, it's all interesting. But then she's kind of like – well, my Padawan is telling me everything, but then she's not sharing with her master. She's also not sharing with her Padawan. And like, <laughs> it was interesting to see Stellan from the perspective of Padawan to master or like yeah. former Padawan to master versus in the rising storm when we sort of see him in his like complicated glory, I suppose, in, in the rising storm. Like we get to yeah. know him a little bit better and things like that his wants and his needs and his sort of private desires and things like that. I'm still not like 100% sure where I land on Stellan. I think he's a good Jedi and everything, but I still like of the triangle, I still prefer Elzar. And for me, I just feel like he's very like straight lined. So it was interesting to see the perspective from Vernestra to kind of look up to her master and see in like some things that her master would mention like the fact that she's like didn't bring up the light whip and things like that like that goes back to my perception of him being so straight edged and like hard lined and things like that like would he approve I don't know stuff like that it was interesting to get this perspective because I think we've also heard that Stellan is like (laughs) he loves the spotlight or like it's perceived that he loves the spotlight things like that I can't get enough of this kind of like multi perspective of like the our main heroes right with like Elzar yeah. and Stalin and Avar Chris and things like that so I really appreciated that I guess like a more complicated view of how this Jedi now who has a past that I'm I want to explore in more novels and things like that how someone who is now on the Jedi Council and like you're right the face of the disaster and things like that what what happens right yeah Well, I feel like we are kind of dipping into part two, but one of my last favorite things about (laughs) Out of the Shadows was Master Nubaran, the amorphous purple-bodied master who floats on the ceiling and only speaks into people's minds. Just, I'm just going to leave it at that, you know? Yeah, that's pretty good. What's not to love? (laughs) When Vanessa was trying to, I guess, like rent out a ship, basically, and he was like, absolutely No. (laughs) but yelling at her and apparently he can like shoot lightning out of his body or electricity i don't know but he seems real cool the way that high republic just sort of drops these like insanely cool things i'm like oh my god also i saw a tweet and i kind of forgot about this the other day that komak has like levitating abilities and just like randomly levitates i guess oh nice just the fact that he just like could uh roll up and like levitate (laughs) into a room and like scare Everyone. I don't know why. There's there's so many things like what we're talking about right now that are just like that's cool, interesting choice. Like <laughs> let's explore that more. <laughs> yeah, no, let's. <laughs> All right. Well, are we ready to dive into part two? Yes, let's do it. Okay, welcome to part two where we're talking about deeper themes. And we did just kind of start uh, talking about the biggest, I think, theme that we're going to be that I really enjoyed about Out of the Shadows, which was the commentary on the Jedi. 
And we have already talked about that um, in the last part a little bit. But I kind of feel like this is going to be similar to our like dark side episode and like even some of our Kenobi episodes of just like reading some of these quotes that Justina writes about the Jedi and reacting to them because I think they're really I think they're really good (laughs) and like made me think a lot about the Jedi in this time period and how people are thinking about them. Um, I do think that there's this quote from George that we almost used in our Kenobi series. I don't think we actually ended up using it, but from the prequel archive books that where he's talking about the Jedi. So this is from the prequel archive book, a conversation between George Lucas and Paul Duncan, the author on page 148. If you have a copy, they're talking about the Jedi and George says, if they do have to use violence, they will, but they're diplomats at the highest level. They've got the power to send the whole force of the Republic, which is 100,000 systems. So if you don't behave, they can bring you up in front of the Senate. They'll cut you off at the knees, politically. They're like peace officers. As the situation develops in the Clone Wars, they are recruited into the army and they become generals. They're not generals. They don't kill people. They don't fight. They're supposed to be ambassadors. There are a lot of Jedi that think the Jedi sold out, that they should have never been in an army. But, Paul Duncan, do you think that? George. It's a tough call. It's one of those conundrums of which there's a bunch of in my movies. You have to think it through. Are they going to stick by their moral rules and all be killed, which makes it irrelevant? Or do they help save the Republic? They have good intentions, but they've been manipulated, which was their downfall. And I think that this whole kind of idea is has really been taken to heart by the higher public and um, all of the authors and creators behind it. I think that Justina's book has, in my opinion, kind of done one of the best jobs of showing these different perspectives of the Jedi from Jedi and also from people viewing them. And like even Sylvester, like she has this idea of who she wants the Jedi to be. But then there's the reality of how they're actually presenting to her and how they that doesn't match up necessarily. But like she doesn't dislike them. She just it's like, I just I want more. And like you're still disappointing me. And like none of this should be happening because there are Jedi in the galaxy. And like, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, but yeah, so I think that I feel like that quote was kind of almost like a good place to start because, you know, we should always go back to George, right? (laughs) Yes. Well, I think that to your last point about like the Jedi themselves thinking about, well, the Jedi can help say there shouldn't be any problems in the galaxy because they exist. Yeah. I think that this quote is interesting because the line, it's one of those conundrums of which there's a bunch of, of in my movies. You have to think it through. Are they going to stick by their moral rules and all be killed, which makes it irrelevant, or do they help save the Republic? And I think that George presents these things as a binary of like, you either don't do anything and you stand by or you fight in an army. And I feel like that's where the high Republic is like, okay, so when you align yourself with the Republic, what does that mean for to be a Jedi? And like, how, how are we exploring the concept of like the Jedi amassing an army? How are we exploring what that means to help out the Republic? What does it mean to be an ambassador? And how are you helping the entire galaxy by aligning yourself with a government body? And how does that overlap with your feelings sort of deep down about the the organization as a whole, I guess? Mm-hmm. I think that what I'm saying is that I think the High Republic is trying to explore a third option. But ultimately, I don't think that third option will be successful. And that's where we get to in our – within the prequel timeline where 
they have no choice because of the parameters that are set in place to align themselves with the Republic, to become commanders of a clone army, to work hand in hand with Palpatine, to have someone sitting on the council who reports directly to Palpatine. All these things, I think we're just sort of leading there where the Jedi are trying to explore different options but can't get there. Yeah, and there's almost it's like there's this precedent that is then set of, oh, we did it before. We can align ourselves with the Republic again. We're like, we've been with the Republic. Of course, yes. we'll be with them again kind of thing. And in, in Light of the Jedi, they talk about this too, that great chapter that we're always referencing of the Jedi Council meeting. And I, I think, who is it? It's Zero Poof that has the whole monologue yes, it is. of like. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Why is that in my head? No, it's just this is what I'm saying about like the random stuff that like <laughs> like the random Jedi with like super yeah. cool powers. Then it's like literal Yerl Poof who like drops <laughs> a huge like knowledge moral morality bomb. Bomb, yeah, and, yeah. And it's just like the, the High Republic is full of such random like good nuggets that are like, oh my god, that was so good. But like, really, it's from Yerl Poof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he talks about like the Jedi's numbers have like dwindled before to like just a handful of Jedi. It's been, you know, triple what it is now in the time of the High Republic. They've been aligned with the Republic before. They have, you know, sat on the sidelines. They've kind of done it all. But I think we're kind of inching closer to them kind of automatically being aligned with the Republic based on how things are going right now. And yeah, it's I think that there is this conversation about what like who are we, what is our responsibility, how do we do that? And you're right, I don't think they figure out how to do it. I think they become more kind of locked into their to that line, right? Talking about like towing that line, that balance. It's almost like they have no room for falling off the line or going on either side and they reject it entirely in some ways. Yeah. Uh, I, sometimes I just think a lot about like in The Last Jedi, you know, the whole DJ thing was good guys, bad guys, they're all the same. But ultimately the the lesson of the movie is that you have to choose the right yeah. side, right? You do have to choose to fight for good or fall for like fall into line with evil. Yeah. And it's even if they're the same, like <laughs> You have to – it's not really how morality works. Like I think that yeah. goes back to the George quote about like you either stick by your moral rules and are all killed, killed. Like, mean, yeah. meaning that it's it's meaningless. Like you have all these you know philosophical ideas, but what does it mean to put them into action? And I think that's where the conversation about like in, the, in our last High Republic discussion episode, we talked a little bit about what we think about Lena So as a chancellor, whether she's good or bad or – performative or something like that you know somewhere in between and I think where we came down was like I think she's good I think she's trying her best but yeah. you just never know right yeah. and I like it's it's sort of like no politician is perfect but you have to back the person that you think is gonna help the galaxy I guess <laughs> so yeah. it's if the Jedi really stood by during the invasion of not just the Nile but the Drengear and did nothing to stop it when they were a part of it, right? Like <laughs> they were number one, definitely a part of the drunk gear. So like this is their problem, right? Like the, this is a major thing that they did. And at least that's my perspective. I don't know if that's controversial to say, but it feels like the unleashing of the drunk gear wouldn't have happened if the Jedi weren't, I don't know, whatever. Regardless, I think that another thing that I think the High Republic is exploring is that aligning yourself with a governmental body 
doesn't necessarily have to be good or bad like we see in the prequels. Like I think that the prequels obviously are a masterful story of a tragedy and how so many things can go wrong. It's like the fall of Rome almost, right? But I I think that there's so much more complication to that. Like how do we get to that point? And that's yeah. what I, that's what I find interesting about the High Republic is we're only in phase one, but I don't know what the trajectory is. Like I I just it's fine if the trajectory is like being exploratory, right? Of all these different mistakes and positives and negatives, because I guess that's history, right? That's what history is: is rising and falling, and rising and falling, and rising and falling. So I think that's fine. But in terms of the history of the Jedi. I don't know where we're leading. Like, what are we foreshadowing? I'm not sure. It'll be interesting once we get to the like the very end or certain like climaxes in the story to see what was hinted at and to go back and talk about all those different points. Yeah. I think it could go a couple ways, right? Like I think that we either see the the Jedi of the High Republic, like towards the end, like in a way like cracking down on rules of, you know there's no hanky-panky among Padawans. Um, And like these kind of special abilities in the force are kind of completely squashed down because, you know, perhaps things have happened with certain characters with these abilities that have really kind of had ripple effects throughout the galaxy and throughout the Jedi. Um, And like, I always think about how in the light, in light of the Jedi, we, you know, heard about how people experience the force differently, like through music, through water, through, air like all of the elements fire earth air but they all experience the force differently and they all have kind of abilities that kind of go beyond just you know quote-unquote typical jedi and we don't see as much of that in the prequel era we do have examples of it like with quinlan Voss, of course so but i also think that could just be a product of the fact that the prequels are the prequels and like they're just the films like there's not this whole like extensive book collection about that time period and like all of the Jedi in that time period. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I think it could go a couple of different ways in regards to that. And like some of these things about like how Jedi experienced the force could be threaded into future books that take place in the prequel timeline. I don't know. That's kind of confusing. So some of the other quotes that kind of got me thinking about the Jedi uh, from this book, this one is from page 80. It says, some Jedi were concerned that their focus was at their focus on their public was at risk of turning from research and education and the workings of the force and politics, uh, which I didn't really realize that that was kind of the intention of the Jedi at some point. Like that was their mission statement, which I thought was kind of cool, kind of interesting. We do see like Comac and Reith do some kind of a bit of Indiana Jonesing in the beginning of the book where they're they like go and collect artifacts. And there's this really interesting line in there that they say of like they bring it to, I guess, like the Jedi Museum or, or something like that, the Jedi Archives. And they're like, you know, maybe at one point we'll be able to return it back to the planet of the planet of origin of where it came from, which is kind of like a, a quite a big red flag when you talk about like artifacts and again in our conversation of like colonialism and like archaeology and all of that and you know Western countries going into other countries and excavating and taking it back to their country and never returning it. That's not great. So I think it's interesting to see the Jedi are kind of doing the same thing here a little bit. Again, this was just like a brief mention, but the fact that they are like using it for research and education 
are there like Jedi classes open to the public? You know, like, yeah, they have a lecture what, series. What's I the deal so here? I was so surprised with the word education. I think yeah. research makes perfect sense to me. I think that I don't think I would have used like jumped to that term right away. But yeah, they were always researching the Force and putting yeah. temples all around. Right. I think that we know that that's in canon. Yeah. But education is. But I guess they were always part of education because there's the Padawans and everything like that. So like it's just different. It's like Jedi school. But for like the general public, again, is there a lecture series? Where do we sign up? Is there a lecture series? Do you have to pay? Is, is there like a credit? retreat? <laughs> a yoga retreat? A meditation retreat with Comac? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd do that in a heartbeat. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Do you want to read this next quote from Comac on page 112? Sure. The Jedi have a duty to protect life and maintain balance, so working with the Republic government is a given. But the Jedi follow the Force. We are the light and we cannot blindly follow any other edict but that one. We go where we best chase away the darkness in the galaxy, and we must not serve any other cause but that. Historically, fighting the Republic's battles hasn't always gone well for the Order. Again, it's just, it's, it, you know, it's just food for thought because like, they're all trying to figure out what to do. Yeah. And none of them have the right answer because there isn't a right answer. They're all put in this really difficult position of what are we going to do about the Nile? <sighs> you know, like right now the Republic seems to be our best option. But then remember we have that guy um, from the Rising Storm, that politician that's like, actually, I don't really want the Jedi involved in what the Republic's doing. Like we need to make our own defense our own army, basically, uh, that is separate from the Jedi because you're not actually the Republic. Like, you're not actually a governmental body. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. It's interesting. I think this goes back to what I was saying before about what is the duty. I think the last line of historically fighting the Republic's battles hasn't gone well for the Order is an interesting one because it goes back to what I was saying before about like – choosing a side. <laughs> the side they chose is according to Comac is the light versus the dark, but to me that's such a nebulous like concept unless it isn't. And like the Jedi have just strayed so far from the Force by the prequel time that I don't even have a concept of like what that is, if you know what I mean? Like do, do you yeah. get what I'm saying? Like yeah. if they only follow the light like as is that light so strong that that's something that they can purely follow without everything else in the galaxy coming up against that? I mean, this goes back to what I was talking about with Imri. Like we have a character who feels everything. So the Jedi, it's like almost like he's representative of the fact that the Jedi can't just like stick their heads in the sand and only like contact the cosmic force or the light or whatever the heck, right? They have to, they feel all these different things that are happening around them. And so do we as human beings, like this is a really good sort of metaphor for it all. Like we can't just stick with our one lane. Like once we're aware of what's happening around the galaxy and the world and our country and around us and our neighborhood, like we want to help. And I don't think that necessarily means just like following the light. I think that means following every sort of system that's in place and like how do we break from those systems and just a lot of questions. Obviously, like you mentioned that all these quotes are just food for thought, but my thoughts are all over the place and that's my thought. <laughs> They're good thoughts. They're good thoughts. <laughs> I was, uh, while you were talking, I was trying to find the actual quote from that thing that, that passage that we've been talking about in the light of the Jedi. I thought we wrote it down in our notes, but we didn't. We just like had the page number. Curse past sky talkers. But there, because there is something in there. Um, LOL. I'm looking at these notes, and we have it spelled out of Markeon. 
in the notes. (laughs) But um, what you're talking about, like following the light and stuff like that, in that passage in Line of the Jedi, the um, I can't remember her name now, but the Jedi master that dies and they're making the decision and she says, we would follow the light and the Jedi always follow the light. So that's how I know the force is leading us in the right direction. Like whatever, basically her conclusion was that whatever choice the Jedi make is automatically in line with the light side of the force. And it was kind of this, like, I remember when we talked about it, we were like, oh, that seems a little suspicious, like to assume that every decision that they make, because they say that they follow the light side of the force is automatically aligned with the light side of the force, when that is not true. (laughs) Um, And I think we see that with the quote I mentioned earlier with Reith and Comac of, you know, Stellan always says what's best for the order. Okay, well, what about what's best for the force? And those are separate questions. And I don't think not every Jedi necessarily treats them as separate questions. Yeah. So the other piece of this, too, is that we're not only getting commentary on the Jedi from the Jedi, but also from other people surrounding the Jedi. And there was this passage near the end of the book from this conversation between Jordana and Silvestri that I was like, Jordana, what? Like, you're so cool. <laughs> I just, she like just starts with this monologue of like how she views the Jedi. And I was like, girl. She's so cool. She really goes for it. Put that on a blog or something. (laughs) (laughs) But I think she has a really cool and interesting perspective of the Jedi that I think Sylvester is going to take with her as they move into their next uh, kind of adventure and whatever way that they intersect with the Jedi again in the future. So this this is from page 300. And they're talking about the Jedi. And Jordana says, I can tell you that the Jedi are very, very bad at change. At adapting to the world around them, Jedi are brave and determined and heroic. But none of that amounts to a week of rations without the ability to perceive the truth of the galaxy around you. Their force might lead them to a larger truth. And I'm glad they're standing with the Republic against the Nile. But they just aren't like us. I think, like, she's so right in this Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, whole Mm -hmm. kind of statement. Like, the Jedi are bad at change. And I I think it's interesting how she describes it as their force, insinuating that she doesn't believe in the force. And she's like, I'm glad they're not my enemy, but (laughs) dot, dot, dot. All of Um, this makes me think of the sequel trilogy. Right? Like, immediately. Yeah. I think about how we wanted the force, and maybe it did, I don't know, the next phase of what happens after the sequel trilogy, like the Jedi changing and things like that. Like. I think the Jedi are bad at change. I think that yeah. we as a like it's almost meta. Like we as a fandom are sometimes even bad at change within Star Wars, you know, especially when it comes to the Jedi. <laughs> and yeah. I think I like the con the, the her saying their force. It also makes me think of like the concepts and the discussions around the sequel trilogy about how Ryan Johnson democratized the force and how that was like such a great thing that happened and things like that, you know. And how how can the Jedi and the Force, if we can think about them as one just for the sake of this conversation right now, how can they move forward after the sequel trilogy? Like what happens when Rey is really the last Jedi and what happens in the future? What will she incorporate from those books and what will she not? I don't know. It's just like so spot on that they are super bad at change and yeah. also so is the Star Wars audience, by the way. So yeah. it's like, it's just interesting how sort of like an avatar for that, you know? I, I don't think there would have been time for this, like kind of in-depth discussion in, in any version of Tross that came out. Agreed. But I Agreed. think that 
like I think that's what we were kind of tracking through the sequel trilogy was okay there needs to be a new definition of the Jedi and I feel like there there isn't really at the end of Tross right now but I think that in whatever is coming next probably whatever is Ray focused I would imagine like mm-hmm. hopefully there is more time for her there has to, to really, be yeah right to like think about okay what what does all of this mean you know it's like Luke says to think that the that the light dies with the Jedi is, um, well, am I rusty or what? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is like false. Is vanity. This vanity. <laughs> Thank you. You're uh, it's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I think in whatever place we see Ray next, I think that is something she needs to be thinking about discussing because she calls herself a Jedi. She takes the Jedi books. Okay. What does that mean? Because everything that has come beforehand has kind of shown us the pros and the cons. And we've, we ultimately ended up at the destruction of the Jedi. So how mm-hmm. how is Rey going to try and build the Jedi back up to be something that can be sustainable for the next thousand years until it breaks down again? Because everything is cyclical at the end of the day. Right. It's let the past die, but it's also don't let the past die. Yeah, and at one point Ray will will be long gone and and be a myth a thousand years later for for future Jedi. So the quote continues from Jordana, this conversation with Silvestri. Jordana goes on and says, I think that maybe they cut themselves off too much from life so that the things they fight for are ideas, not people. It's not a bad thing. I guess that must just be how it is when you see all of the galaxy and its secrets laid out before you in distinct degrees of good and bad. And Silvestri responds and says, do you really think the Jedi are so... I don't know, simple. And Jordana responds and says, I think the force keeps them on a path that most of us only dream of. Just think how easy your life would be if you could always know the exact right thing to do. This is from page Oh my 300. God. This and- like, entire conversation is everything. That's literally what I just said. I just want to say that. <laughs> if they stick their head in the sand and they only follow the light, of course, that's so freaking easy. But it's not that easy. Nothing in life is that easy. Yeah, that's the thing. Because it's like, that is how how a lot of people view like how Jordana views the Jedi is that because in a lot of ways she's right like you know you're a kid you get brought to the Jedi temple you're told this is your life this is what we stand for you know do it walk the walk talk the talk and it's like okay if I have this morality that has kind of been placed upon me it makes decisions a lot easier. But the reality is, is that we see so many Jedi in the higher public being like, holy crap, like, what do I do? And <laughs> but, but we also see the flip side of it, like, too, right? That quote I was talking about before from Lie of the Jedi, where the, the Jedi Master was like, well, whatever we're doing is automatically the light side of the Force, so let's do it. But then in Rising Storm, right, we, we talked about this in our episode about during the attack on the Republic Fair, remember how every Jedi was having this internal monologue of like, I'm not going to kill him. I'm not going to kill the Nile unless I absolutely have to. Like, don't put me in that position. Like, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to let them live. And we were like, dude, you're being attacked. Like, <laughs> And it was this huge thing when Elzar finally crossed the line, right? And he had that whole monologue of like, what is he doing? And so like in some ways, the choices are easy for them. But then in other ways, it's not at all. In a lot mm-hmm. of ways, it's not at all because life is never that black and white. Even if you are in an organization that portrays the world that it perhaps views things as black and white when it doesn't actually. It's also like just so unrelatable in a story to have a character who knows exactly what to do based off of some like gut feeling. 
people rarely have gut feelings and everyone has doubts and concerns and hopes and fears and dreams and things like that that all interfere with everything. So it's like, it would be such a boring story to me if every single Jedi was like, I know exactly what to do. It's like things have to be completely, of course, things can be reinforced by the force and like yield something, their decisions can yield something in the force. But if you have this sort of conviction behind you of like, this is, I know exactly what I'm doing or I'm always right. Like part of it is that's like narcissistic too, is to think that you're always doing the right thing. And that again, goes against what the Jedi stand for or like what I think the Jedi would stand for. So it just doesn't really work. Again, it's just really good that the High Republic at least sort of drops these nuggets of like, oh, interesting. That's fascinating. Let's dive into that a little bit more, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Then, of course, like later on in the book, when Jordana and Vanessa are fighting the Nile, Vanessa has this whole like internal monologue herself about like what Jordana is doing and killing the Nile. And like, is that right? It's not, but like, what else are we going to do here? And so, like, we see her struggling with this moral, even though Jordana, you know, not too long ago was like, well, they have everything so easy. Like, it's all black and white. Like, they're good. Mm-hmm. But what, like, what does that really amount to at the end of the day? Mm-hmm. I think, I think it's interesting. Me too. Me too. There's also this kind of interesting thing I wanted to bring up about Stellan, too. In this book, we don't get a lot of him, very few snippets, like we said earlier. But uh, there is this part where he's talking, again, they're talking about the Republic and the Jedi, how they are going to move forward together to combat the Nile and the Drengear. And Stellan says he's wanting to like fully align the Jedi with the Republic. And he says, who is to say we'll discover their next plot before it costs the Republic's lives? He's talking about the Nile. What we need is a fully coordinated response with the Republic, not the piecemeal actions we've taken over the past couple of months. And then another master responds to him and says, The Jedi are not soldiers, and what you're describing sounds perilously close to war, and that should never be a means of last resort. That's from page 410 of Out of the Shadows, when, in The Rising Storm, we had Stellan's conversation with Chancellor Mm -hmm. So about this, and Chancellor So was talking about them joining hands, basically, and Stellan tells Chancellor So, the Jedi are not warriors, nor should we ever be. I think this is a really good uh, example of like what happens when you witness a disaster and like how fast you can rush into changing your mind about war or something. I don't know. Yeah. It's quite a character development. This is what I mean about like, I don't, it was an interesting perspective to see Stellan from this book versus the last because it's clear he he had a lot on his mind and things have changed and everything that happened at Valo has like completely changed him and how does he move forward? Yeah. One thing I wanted to talk about also was this quote from Jordana on page 304 where she says, I've spent the past six months trying to keep people alive and failing at it quite spectacularly, but I don't know if that makes me good or not. How do I make a difference in the galaxy that seems to bend naturally towards destruction? And in our notes, you wrote, is it all bending towards destruction? And it finally breaks in the Revenge of the Sith. Caitlin, do you, do you think it's all bending towards destruction? Or I think earlier in the episode, I said history is a series of ups and downs and ups and downs. And like, is that what we're heading to? I found this quote really interesting. Yeah, I did too. I don't know if I think the galaxy is naturally bent toward destruction. I think... I like this about Jordana's character that she does have kind of definitive uh, views on the galaxy. 
and like it's naturally bending toward disaster, but I'm still trying to keep people alive. Like, does that count? Um, like if, if it's a, a morality game, it's like, I, that's what I feel I'm supposed to be doing. Even if perhaps it doesn't ultimately matter. I kind of feel like if we're on a roller coaster, like we're at the, we're at the top of the hill right now yeah. <laughs> and yeah, we're, we're, you know, climbing to the apex, to the climax of the high Republic and it will come crashing down. It's obviously, so I kind of think it is. I think it is all bending toward destruction because this is what we're kind of always talking about with Star Wars, how we get to what we know is coming in the future. And it puts us in a pretty unique perspective as the audience to kind of, in a lot of ways, always know what's coming next, but also not always knowing what's coming next. (laughs) Yeah. I think what this quote reminded me of is that very famous Martin Luther King quote of, we shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long and bends towards justice. So for me, I felt like this was a pretty negative assumption of the world, right? Like that everything in the galaxy is bending towards destruction. I don't necessarily think that's wrong because of what we know about about Star Wars. I mean, hello, on the show, we say Star Wars is tragedy. tragedy. It's like definitely a thing. But I think that this was said probably in like a low moment, even though I do think it's partially true. But like, I also kind of believe deeply in this Martin Luther King quote, you know, that I do think that the arc of the universe does bend towards justice, you know? And I think that the Jedi are sort of testament to that as much as I just stood here and criticized them and said that (laughs) they are a little bit lost and everything. I mean, they're still heroes, right? They're still on the good side, but they're obviously not not without their faults and uh, struggles and things like that. And I think that's just all part of it. I think that's the thing. You could easily like have a Jedi saying this about the galaxy. Like, I've spent my life trying to keep people alive and failing at it quite spectacularly. I don't know if that makes me good or not, but I like I do trust in the force. I think is what a Jedi mm-hmm. would probably say. Yeah, and they're like the Jedi are trying to make a difference in a galaxy that is perhaps bending t- naturally toward destruction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they'd make it a little bit more philosophical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I do feel like we should talk some more about hyperspace travel let's do it i think it's really cool and as i said before i love 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 the prospector lore i work in the transportation industry so like again i'm thinking about this a lot so i was like yay (laughs) more (laughs) but i do think there's like some really interesting tidbits about again the out of the shadows i feel like it's kind of like the linchpin for the next set of high republic books and like the plot at large and what's going to happen everything with chancy and her role with the nile and now uh with her what is it called the gravity well projector her invention is that what it's called yes yes all of that i think is going to be a major player moving forward so i think it's important and these like kind of little history tidbits about hyperspace and like the exploration of hyperspace i think is really cool particularly this quote from Stellan, where he's talking to Vernestrag, I think in a flashback about her abilities. And he says, your strange visions could be a precursor to such a rare ability. You know, there is talk that in ancient times, the Jedi were the first to jump to hyperspace and they did it using only the force. And then we also have Xylan Graf saying, uh, some will tell you hyperspace lanes are navigable wormholes and others will claim they are routes carved out by some ancient race that no longer exists. Like, is that, are those force users? You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) I think it's really cool. And then this last quote was from page 114. And it says, 
there was some thought among the Jedi scholars that hyperspace was a part of the cosmic force, the lanes of energy that sprang from some unknown font. Others say hyperspace is another dimension, a shadow of the world occupied by the living force, and said that was why planets and other real objects impacted hyperspace as they did. Vernestra didn't know who was right. Philosophy was rarely about providing a theory as far as she had seen and more about and more often about embracing the possibilities. And there was no final answer on just what hyperspace was. Everyone knew how to use it, but only the scholars still debated its nature. And I think this has been me as a Star Wars fan, right? Like, oh, it's just hyperspace. But now they're like actually breaking down like, okay, well, what is it? And I think it's a really awesome question. <laughs> I need to tell you what I thought of when I read both of these quotes when I was yeah. reading. I was really thinking about Ezra and the Purgles at the end of Rebels. Yeah. Because I think, first off, the fact that the Purgles can jump to hyperspace is something that I think I, I would guess that the authors of the High Republic like that. <laughs> like I I would yeah, think that they would be totally. like into the Purgles. So Who's I would not? think that that would be <laughs> exactly. I would think that that's something that they would want to sort of answer or dive into or like wish that they could answer or something like that. I have always been of the I've always maintained, okay, that and this could probably change with like new stories, obviously, but I remember watching the end of Rebels and when sorry, spoilers for Rebels, if you haven't watched it, skip ahead like four minutes maybe. When Ezra jumps to hyperspace at the end with the Purgles and disappears forever, I was always like, oh, that's this happened and he was able to do this because of the episode that came before this that was like about the world between worlds and accessing different points and like using the cosmic force. And I never really thought anything about that until we went to record and you were like, didn't talk about that at all or like didn't think about that. And I was like, oh, I think my reading is wrong. But now I, I still kind of don't think it's wrong because I th still think there's something there about like accessing the cosmic force and like the fact that in these books they're exploring the nature of hyperspace to the point where there's like quote unquote like myths of like ancient beings who carve things, force users, the fact that it is like it can be used for the cosmic, like the cosmic force, the living force, something like that, a shadow world occupied by the living force and I think when I think of Ezra, I think of a character who had such contact with both the cosmic and the living force, especially with his ability to talk to creatures and sort of feel major empathy for them and connect with them. So for me, I was like, oh, he just tapped into a power that he only had because he had that sort of unconscious ability to tap into that side of like the living or the cosmic force, like choose your poison, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I think that there's something there. I think there's a linkage, you know, just like I thought that there was a linkage between the Cloud Riders and the Nile. I think there's a linkage here of the Purgles and the ability to jump to hyperspeed, right? To go to hyperspace through, like, with a creature. Like, it's so crazy. And it, it sort of all matches, like, the weirdness and the myths and the legends of it all. It all comes together and it can come together with that answer. And maybe we're leading towards that with the series that we'll explore where Ezra and Thrawn are. Lord, <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> please. Yeah. From this podcast, Mike, to Kathleen Kennedy's ears. <laughs> <laughs> Please. yeah i think i love the idea that like what xylan is talking about are the purgles this like ancient race but really it's just the purgles and they're still around you just haven't seen them because like maybe they moved to a different because their like their habitat of hyperspace mm -hmm. got taken they've moved to a new one 
And like yeah. maybe yeah, you say like it's really just the Purgles, but like remember yeah. when they encountered the Purgles, it was like seeing a mythological being. Yeah. They didn't know what that was. Like <laughs> it was like confusing. Yes, very similar to the Bendu. It's just a weird force thing, you know? And this is yeah. – I, I think they're connected. I don't think that there's – like I don't think that the Purgles created hyperspace, but I do think that they're part of they, it, I guess. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. from it and also like of it. Yes. Yeah, I think like I think it's probably – like I just have visions now, more visions, I guess, because we, we saw Ezra basically do this, but – of you know jedi riding pergols like in in the ancient times through hyperspace and like maybe all these stories have just gotten separated but they're actually just one story oh so cool that like ezra you know i think that there's some conversation about like is ezra like the ultimate jedi and like the fact that if that were if that were true and he did that he would be tapping into like a historical like something that the jedi represented and did before like that would be so cool yeah yeah, it really would be. And then we have Vernestra's hyperspace visions, which were so kind of eerie, this like mm-hmm. little like side plot, like this important side plot of this like creepy vision that she is having throughout uh, the book. And then it ultimately leads her to Mari Santeca, which was not at all <laughs> what I was thinking was going to happen. And Mari Santeca choosing to give this final path to Vernestra what did you make of that? First off, I thought it was so cool. I think you hit the head on hit hit the nail on the head by saying it was eerie. It was creepy. I didn't know whether to trust her or not. I mean, I think I've always been sympathetic to Mari as one would be because of her just capture, right? Yeah. She's imprisoned. But everything about her slipping into the cosmic force was eerie, was a little chilling, felt wrong, especially when she heard from Comac or Stella now I can't remember who said that not to do that and it felt for me as a reader I was like no she should do that like when yeah. some of when someone above her is like don't do that Jedi have fallen too deeply I'm like no do it yeah. <laughs> please explore that like that sounds like it would make sense for your character and your journey like it seems like you need to do that I think it's interesting because for me it further aligns I don't know. This kind of goes back to my thought about like Vernestra turning to the dark side or like knowing too much or having too much pressure on her because now she has the final path too. So like there's just so much on her and so much like the prodigy of it all, you know? And I don't know. I was sort of surprised in the same way that you were and was shocked and I'm still really not sure what to make of that. Yeah, I think that I actually think that, like, by the end of the book, Vernestra is, in a lot of ways, like, much more confident about her abilities. And, like, I think she knows what she has is important Mm -hmm. from what, like, the the journey that she's been on throughout the book. And so I feel like she – throughout the book, I felt like she was hiding her visions because she was scared to fall too deeply into the cosmic force. Because – and that was the thing, too. Like, the visions kept happening to her. But once she chose to initiate the vision and like to initiate the the walk down the hallway, I think is what it was that like took her to Mari Santeca. Um, once she actually initiated the vision, it it was like, oh, I've like I've jumped into the deep end, but I like know how to swim basically. And it was yeah. like, oh, okay, now I realize the importance like of what they were trying to tell me. Like this isn't scary. This is imperative that I have this information, this knowledge, this past, this final thing from Mari Santeca. 
So I, and I think now she knows that what she chooses to keep to herself, like she has a greater reason for keeping it to herself. Like before she wasn't telling Stellan or Emery kind of the full truth of her visions out of fear. But now it's like, it's all, in some ways it's almost like she's smarter about it now, or she's more aware of this is super important and I need to make sure that I know what's going to happen when I reveal this information. Like there's more agency almost. Do you think that there's a possibility that in the future, now that Vernestra has felt and made a connection with Mari Santeca before she died, it was given a path that with Vernestra's powers in order to be able to con- like go through and go into a trance like this, is that that it's similar to what Mari could do with yeah. plotting the hyperspace pass? Like could Vernestra be like oh, used- a new path, like a new oracle? Yes, a new oracle. Ooh, uh, that's such a good theory. <laughs> I just, I, I just came to me because I think that you know, Mari chose her, and it was like it, it felt so bestowed upon her, right? This like, yeah. it's not. I, I feel like it can't just be about one path. Like it has to be about more. And already it was like, how does Mari even do this? You know, people talk about her and. Like her, it was, she was extraordinary. She had these abilities, things like that. It was just unreal, right? People talk about that. Yeah. And to me, it's like it's almost how the same way they talk about Vernestra. It's like so crazy that she's a Jedi Knight already, that she has this amazing ability, that she has a Padawan, that she is so even tempered, is such a good Jedi. She's like the best, right? <laughs> and I and now she has this calling from this savant, right? Uh, with with Mari. So it's so interesting. Like what's next for her now that she has this knowledge, how does the knowledge go further? Yeah. Well, what I thought about when you were talking, I guess to kind of like build off of your theory is what if Mari continues to converse with Vernestra through the cosmic force and becomes like a ghost teacher? Ooh, that would be so cool. We want a ghost teacher. We, All we, we want, want in Star Wars is ghost teachers. More ghost like, teachers. Yeah. <laughs> I think it'd be really cool because like Mario is not a Jedi. And so, you know, the whole who has access to the force kind of thing, right, that we're always talking about. I think it'd be really cool if suddenly Vernestra is seeking guidance from someone who is long gone mm. and in the cosmic force and can kind of only appear in the cosmic force when Vernestra is going into this like super deep trance and a meditation in the cosmic force that is a little bit dangerous, but it's the only way she can talk to Mari. And what does that mean? And like we saw uh, Elzar kind of what his is swimming, right? Like falling into the deep end. I think there are all these kind of interesting parallels, but I think it'd be really cool if we have this Jedi who suddenly like can't seek guidance from the Jedi anymore, especially because throughout this book, she's been like, come on, Emery, we got to like go talk to this person to give you exercises to do. And like, I'm, you know, the supposed to be the perfect Jedi master and I'm not, but then like the person who actually understands her the best and like knows how to help her is someone who's not a Jedi at all. I think that'd be really cool. Me too. I think it would be great. And it really would aid to the conversation that we're talking about, about like a Jedi's duty. And yeah, yeah. I also think that just saying that it would kind of point a little bit to the dark side thing or the temptation of it all. It would. Someone's got to fall. 
Someone's got to fall. I mean, I think there's going to be multiple people who fall at this point. There's so many characters. They can't all just stay on one side. Sorry. (laughs) But it's so, there's so, there's, I think the Lost 20 are already a thing. So it's like we already began the Lost 20. So do we have many more spots? Yes, we do. We really do. It would be so interesting if they were actually like, they stopped making the bus because so many people were lost. What about Dooku? There's like, no, 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 no. Like now during the higher public era, that and they and the Jedi are like so ashamed at this like huge thing that has happened of like all these Jedi. Like, what if it becomes like a civil war basically within the Jedi order of like the people who have fallen to the dark side? Throw a little bit of the astral plane in there. I got to get the astral plane into Star Wars somewhere. I think I did not really get it in drums of like Vernestra in the cosmic cosmic force. And, you know, like that's kind of like the astral plane and like hyperspace. Like they talk about another dimension, astral plane. Sorry. Um, But there's like this huge civil war. And so it's like so many Jedi were lost in this war amongst themselves. And whoever was left had to completely – like rewrite the history of the Jedi, not rewrite it, but like hide it in the the archives that are locked. And so it's like they just kind of started over because mm-hmm. there were hundreds or like a lot of Jedi who were lost. I think it's interesting like to reframe the whole narrative of who the Jedi are by the time we get to the prequel trilogy. Like they basically take it down to the bones and rework it so that nothing else like that ever happens again. And that's when we get this really strict Jedi. And we've seen the galaxy completely forget who the Jedi were when we get to the original trilogy. And it's really only been like 20 years. And everyone's like, the Jedi, aren't they a myth? And I'm like, dude, (laughs) you were 10 years old when this all happened. And you lived on Coruscant. What do you mean the Jedi were a myth? (laughs) Anyway, uh, it it could get really dark. And yeah. And so then by the time we get to the prequel trilogy, the Jedi count and oh my god and Yoda would have all of this knowledge <gasps> and he would not be sharing it with anyone of like what happened he's the keeper of like this incredibly dark period where there was a civil war amongst the Jedi all the writers know where this is going so I think that's another thing that I think is really great about the High Republic is that multiple people multiple creatives have been like yes we know where this is all going we have it all pl- laid out like of course we can change some things based off of like fan reaction and things like that like who you're rooting for things like that but they they have an ending that they're sticking to so it'll be oh so God. interesting you what? and you're all poof too he would know I know that's what I was gonna say I was gonna say <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to interrupt your like tangent <laughs> Yoda and your poof would have to have like a, a secret beer and be like oh my yeah. god remember remember Elzar yeah we died <laughs> I can't wait I love the High Republic so much yeah the last kind of thing about hyperspace is I think you know one of these other things to keep track of is now the Santecas know that the Nile took Mari Santeca all those years ago and it's kind of been this like secret or this like what this question mark of what really happened to her and now they know which I think is really interesting and I also you know just worth repeating again I'm really glad that this like major threat in the galaxy right now currently is non-force users in the form of the Nile I think is really good and yeah Jordana talks about the Bereng sector the Berenge sector and I read it as Berenge, and now I'm like, that's wrong. Oh, <laughs> like like we'll Berenge. Uh, the Berang. Berang. Berange. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> Move on. Anyway, she talks about like, I think 
Barang, whatever it's called, is where like the Sintecas began their family and like their their explorations and stuff. And the way she describes it is it kind of is like a haunted house because I think this is where Mari was kidnapped from um, or where she was born or something like that. And they kind of abandoned the sector after Mari was taken or believed dead, whatever it was. So it sounds a little haunted and she describes it as cursed. So that seems like a great setting for a future High Republic book. I also want to remind you that it, with with the Santeca conversation, that in the beginning of the first High Republic novel, that the Santecas sort of withhold held the information about who they thought. Remember, they were contacted by the Republic and they were like, how yeah. are the Nile doing this? And they were like, I don't know can't be us who knows and then when everyone left they were like do you really think it's do you think you know they were like freaking out a little bit because they definitely knew but they withheld it so like there's definitely tension there already so it'll be interesting you're right like now that that's a that is aware like now that they're aware that the nile now that it took mari now it's confirmed like what does that mean in terms of their allegiance and are they ever going to fess up to the fact that they knew that from the like a year ago you know I think the, here's what I think. I think the Santecas knew what Mari's abilities were. Yeah. I don't, and I think they knew that that's probably why she had been kidnapped. I don't think they probably realized that she was still alive. And there's definitely more to the story here, by the way. Like, um, there's yeah, definitely totally. more to it. <laughs> yeah. My speculation would be that they didn't, that they knew that she was kidnapped for those reasons, perhaps even by the Nile, but because perhaps what they were doing was kind of under the table with Mari anyway, that, that, was why they withheld information but i would i think they my current speculation is that they would not know that she had been kept alive this whole time and Mm -hmm. had literally just died Mm -hmm. so yeah all right is there anything we want to talk more about in terms of the themes of out of the shadows i don't think so i think we're ready to move into quotes let's do it listen big deal you got another problem women always figure out the truth always. Okay, so welcome to part three. We're going to be giving each other quotes to react to. If you're a new listener to Sky Talkers, on our book discussions, we sort of popcorn each other page numbers from the book. They don't, the other doesn't know which page number or what is the, what the quote is. And we then react to it. It's a spiritual practice called Lectio Divina. We sort of water it down a little bit to just talk about the quote as we have been in this episode a lot. So we're each going to do two quotes. Caitlin, do you want to go first? Uh, Sure. Okay. All right. So if you go to page 106. Yes. And I feel like this kind of folds into a lot of what we were talking about already, but I think it's a good quote to bring up. This is in the middle of the page from Nan. She says, Nan wasn't afraid of death. She would die as she'd lived on her own terms. But this artificial life the Oracle enjoyed was a horror. Nan didn't much ponder the difference between good and evil. It was all a matter of perspective after all. But the Oracle's fate was definitely terrifying. That's interesting. My first reaction, I don't know why, but the concept of permanence and how Mari has lived for was it has it been hundreds of years it's been a a very long time it's been so long yeah (laughs) and the fact that first off nan is a character that we didn't talk enough about in this episode already but nan is a character is very like i'm gonna fight you i'll fight you whatever like she's like so much (laughs) and i don't think she's afraid of death but i think this conversation that we've been having of good or evil like choosing good side choosing evil like it's maybe perhaps like the worst thing you could do is to not ponder it at all 
And her like that line, Nan didn't ponder the difference between good and evil. It was all a matter of perspective after all. But like, I don't think that Nan has sort of thought about that perspective, you know, or like has wondered what good choices would be versus evil choices, just because she's been so wrapped up in denial and everything. It'll be interesting to see what happens now that she's sort of removed for it, from it and is an informant. But I think that something that's um so sad about Mari is that she, you know, the, the the concept of Nan wasn't afraid of death. She would die as if she lived on her own terms. But this artificial life that the Oracle enjoyed was a horror. First off, the Oracle did not enjoy this life, right? Yeah. And it was a horror. And I think by the end of it with Mari's life, like, I hope that she did die on her own terms by, I mean, she didn't die on her own terms, but like the very fact that she gave that final path like she 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 sort of I don't know that was good right that was a really good choice she had agency there yeah so for me when we read this the first thing that came out of my brain was like the concept of permanence and like how that's not necessarily like a good thing I don't know Nan I think is an interesting character in that she like in this instance where it says Nan didn't much ponder the difference between good and evil it was all matter perspective was very DJ to me and I think I think Nan has thought about it, and I think she's decided that she doesn't care. Like, that's the thing. Like, I think she knows. But she kind of pleasures herself in the, like, being bad and, like, not in being bad, but doing and taking what she wants and not caring about consequence. And I do think there's a difference. Like, I think the fact that even that she – like, what you mentioned, this artificial life that the Oracle enjoyed was a horror. Like, those two words do not go together. Enjoyed, horror. Mm -hmm. And that mm-hmm. juxtaposition is kind of that, like, sickly, cute evil, if that makes sense. Like, right. There, there's a word for it where it's, like, creepy cute. That, like, that kind <laughs> of that kind of combination, I think, is, is kind of what I think of when I think of Nan. Because she's, like, earlier when whoever she was with at, in Markian's chamber, uh, when she was like, I just can't wait to, like, it would, you know, a happy accident if I just happened to kill you. You know, like, that kind of the way she speaks about things. And even when she sees wreath later on she's like oh it's so great to see you again like do you think you could get us out of here and then maybe i'll kill you you know like um it's just it's it's almost a little bit like uh ventress and obi-wan that like flirtiness but don't like sleep with one eye open yeah (laughs) so i don't know i kind of think that it was an interesting passage from nan because i think at the end of the day i actually think she has thought about the difference between good and evil but then has decided she doesn't care. So like now she doesn't think about it at all and that everything just needs to be on her own terms, whatever those yeah. are. And I do think that like if there ever is a dedicated story to her and Wreath, I think that'll be a really interesting kind of uh, friction between them. And Nan is like, this is what we're like, why do you care so much what those other people people think about what you're doing? And then Wreath will go into his whole thing and Nan will be like, yeah, no, I live for me and me alone and you should too kind of thing, you know? Yeah, I feel like you summed up my thoughts way better than I did in like first reaction. <laughs> so thank you for that. Are you ready for your quote? Yes. It's on page 178. Okay. So the quote starts with Wreath. Wreath turned to Imri and was about to ask him a question when he noticed Imri's expression had gone from happy to happy excitement to near panic. Wreath flashed back to the scene in the dining facility on Starlight, the way the boy instinctively created force bonds with those around him. He wondered what it would be like for someone as sensitive to the emotions of others as Imri 
is as Imri was to suddenly be plunged into seething mass of life on Coruscant. It had been a bit like being pushed into a raging river, especially after so much time spent on the sparsely populated frontier. And judging by Imri's wide eyes, the boy was drowning. Aww. <laughs> I know. This makes I me know. sad. <laughs> um, I yeah, I think this goes back to a lot of our conversation about Imri earlier in the episode, but it just is so overwhelming. And there is, I think there's such sympathy from everyone around him about what to do and how to help him. But he's still so young. And so like he he has to go through this right now. Like the only thing that's going to make it better is him is training, honestly, which is what Vernestra is trying to figure out how best to do for him. But how is she going about it? She's also very young herself, too. So it's, you know, the blind leading the blind in some ways. But I I think this is, this passage was a good kind of representation of what happens to Emery when he's kind of put in like in crowded places and with a lot of people and especially on a planet like Coruscant where there's a lot of things going on at once. And I think I think it was interesting because Wreath is someone who we know prefers Coruscant. He prefers to be at the library on Coruscant where he knows as opposed to the frontier. So I think it was a good choice to have a character like Emery kind of see a different perspective or just recognize that everything that he values about somewhere like Coruscant can actually be the cause of a lot of anxiety for someone like Emery. Exactly. And I think that Wreath is just a character that we see through his eyes of someone who was sort of liked his insular life on Coruscant. Now he's like outside of it, even on the Starlight, yeah. which is like similar to the Jedi Temple, if not the same thing. It's still a total step from his insulated, you know, library-like life. So he's always kind of building up different perspectives. And I really appreciate that about his character. One thing yeah. I really liked, and I think that we just didn't talk about enough, was the boy ex- instinctively created force bonds with those around him. Just the terminology of creating force bonds. And like he does do that. He sort of soothes the other's emotion and tries to do that, you know? And I don't think that was like fully explored in like with the Raylo force bond or anything like that, but maybe it was, maybe it wasn't sort of this like sort of uh, manipulation of emotion. I'm not sure, but it was interesting. Yeah. Because on the one hand, it's like Reef is so empathetic or uh, Emery is so empathetic to people. This creation of force bonds is like, Oh, don't feel sad anymore. But like your sadness with 10 other people's sadness standing right next to you is, is 11 people's sadness inside of me. And exactly. I can't deal with that. So it's, mm-hmm. it's like, what? It's, it's tough. It's tough. Yeah. So like, what else do you do? Do you like, you make a connection with the other person and try to calm them down because it, it not only calms them down, but it also calms you down. <laughs> so it's like yeah. mutually beneficial in yeah. the same way that like the force bond with Raylo was like mutually beneficial. It really was. Yeah. So yeah. All right. Are you ready for your next quote? Yes. It is on page 188. Okay. All right, it's the middle of the page, starting with well. Well, I'd expected you a bit earlier, Stalin said, indicating that Vanessa should enter his office. It was like most rooms in the temple, Spartan and utilitarian, with the number of circular seating pads and data pad placed and a data pad placed on a nearby table. The room was just as she remembered it from the last time she had been on Coruscant, when the office had belonged to Raina Kant, Stalin's former master. Coming to visit Stalin now in the same space gave Vanessa a peculiar feeling of traveling in a repeating pattern 
not moving forward, but occupying the same spaces over and over again. I really like the last sentence here, not moving forward, but by occupying the same spaces over and over again. It sort of like kind of struck a chord in real life about like going through the motions of like daily life and how that can be stifling or something. It was the part I had highlighted too. (laughs) I think that it's – or like not not going through any sort of change because that change can be uncomfortable or something like that. But And I think that Vernestra kind of recognized that when she steps back into something of like her past because I think that's how she sees this place is like her not moving forward. And I think as we've talked about in this episode, Vernestra has moved forward a lot in this this book, you know? Yeah. And uh, so like going back to that place sometimes, you know, you know how it is when you – live on your own and then you go back to your parents house and then all of a sudden you're like their child again yeah and it is you sort of um kind of fall back into that routine that was both stifling and comforting at the same time that's kind of the feelings that I get from this moment with Vernestra is you know she's moved she's grown beyond right she has become her own Jedi Knight and everything but now she's back with like her basically her parental figure in this space that was so familiar to her. Yeah. And try and having to occupy this space as like coming into it as a Padawan again in a lot of ways, even though yeah. she is a knight. Yeah. And like trying to prove herself and trying to show that she has changed, but then also kind of holding that close to her 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 chest because she doesn't want to share it all. Like all of her changes, like her light whip, right? Which I think is yeah. really key to not I don't know how she's not open with Stellan here. It's yeah. like not being open with a parent because you just don't want to like let on too much about how much you've changed, you know, because you don't want the judgment. So it's interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I pretty much thought everything that you said too. And um, it also just got me thinking, you know, this is the Jedi Temple and Vernestra talks about how this was Reyna's uh, office and now it's Stellan's and like whose office is it by the time we get to the prequel trilogy, you know, like these spaces are just continually occupied and like what has changed really maybe not that much, maybe not as much as we think. Like we're just occupying the same spaces over and over again and repeating the same movements around the room, having the same conversations of like, who are the Jedi? What do they mean? What are they supposed to do? This whole thing, the cyclical nature of it all. Yeah. Um, The quote I'm going to give you next is actually pretty sort of similar. It's kind of in the same vein. Okay. And it's on page 61. It starts on 61 and it goes into 62. Okay. When she had first arrived, Vernestra had been awed by the view from the Jedi's main tower. The lift, this is on the Starlight Beacon, the lift emptied out onto a windowed balcony that pointed not toward the rest of the Starlight, but the vastness of space. The stars of the galaxy pressed in all around in a way that could make some feel small and insignificant, but made Vernestra feel part of something much larger. The force was all, and the endless view was an awe-inspiring reminder of that fact. But in the past few weeks, Vernestra had stopped stopped noticing the view, instead always focused on getting to her bed and speaking with one of the other Jedi about this issue or that. But knowing that she would soon be leaving the Starlight Beacon, Vernestra paused in front of the bank of windows and let in the cosmic force, and let the cosmic force wash over her, feeling it in the ebb and flow of stars and in the rushing life of the station, a dozen streams coming together into the crash of waves. This is a good Vernestra moment because I think 
it's interesting. This is kind of like at the beginning of the story, basically, of her, yeah. like her and the cosmic force, kind of like letting the cosmic force wash over her. And she notices how she kind of shrunk away from that for a while when she got into the minutiae and the, the day-to-day of what she was doing. But by the end of it, not only has she let it wash over her, but she's like dove back into it entirely um, in order to potentially have, you know, a very important piece of the puzzle moving forward through the higher public. But I think I kind of just like the honestly, like the imagery in this passage that you read, you know, like standing from the Jedi's main tower, it it feels very fairy tale and like looking out onto the night sky, but you know, you're in a spaceship, so it's like the galaxy <laughs> and like all the stars around you. And I don't know, that's like a very a very cool like sci-fi image in my head, you know, of being on a spaceship. And I enjoyed that piece of Star Wars. <laughs> and then Me too. Uh, her kind of like I, I in some ways I kind of feel like the passage is kind of representative of her journey uh, in the book of, mm-hmm. you know, being awed by the force, feeling burdened by her duties and then ultimately coming like coming back to what she knows, coming back to the source of it all, which is the cosmic force by the end of the book. Absolutely. And I think that just the quote that we read before this about like yeah. her feeling small or like treading familiar territory when she walks into Stellan's office. And it's like really, it, it's it's overwhelming in the fact that it was stifling and not, she doesn't feel like it's um, the vastness of the force, the array, the crash of waves that is so, yeah that we look to as like such a mystical thing that the connection to the force is pure and so like going back into something that would stifle that like an office that's the other thing about your other quote too that I wanted to talk about is that an office versus a window right if we can put these side by side an office is like caving in sort of small I mean you you feel like within it and I think that in our head like when we think about a standard office or like a nice office there's like bookshelves on it and um like a desk in the middle and like, it's so official, you know? And with, I don't know if that's exactly what that look for Stellan's office was. I didn't really picture that, but it's probably along those lines. Right. And, but like her standing in front of a window here, it's like a perfect dichotomy of these two pieces of sets right within the story of one like an open window it's not open obviously but like (laughs) a vast (laughs) sea of stars versus an enclosed space that stifles her and makes her think of being a child uh one inspires and one does the opposite so it's interesting yeah it is i think that was a good quote quote to end on yeah i just didn't expect that sometimes we we do this in the quotes that we pick. I love when it happens when we pick a quote and like it it sort of either flows from our previous discussion or they sort of reflect each other. It's great. Yeah. Because we don't cheat. We don't look up the quotes. the other. No, not at all. Never. Never. We would never do that. No, but like actually, I know that sounds sarcastic. That sounds like, yeah, but we don't actually. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, is there anything else that we wanted to bring up about Out of the Shadows before we close out the discussion? I think that's it. Yeah, I feel like we covered a lot, but also not a lot. I feel like we often get very high level with like the Jedi. But, but that's why we're – that's who we are. Okay, Because sometimes I'm like, oh, man, there's like a lot of details about the book we didn't discuss. But then I'm like, oh, we talked about like other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's rambly, but with some structure. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Well, I think that is going to wrap up our discussion of Out of the Shadows. We both really enjoyed this book. So I hope uh, if you haven't read it yet, but for some reason wanted to listen to our discussion of it all the way through, uh, I hope that maybe you're encouraged to go and read it because there is a lot that we left out about this book, a lot of great things that are included in it. So definitely worth the read uh, if you haven't read it already. And looking forward to the next installment from The High Republic and also from Justina Ireland too. I really enjoyed her work. So that is going to wrap up this episode. If you want to find us online, you can find us on Twitter at SkyTalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher and Charlotte's is at Clarity. We also have our website, SkyTalkers.com, our Instagram, our TikTok, and Facebook. You can find us in all those places. If you haven't left us a review yet on iTunes, we would so appreciate if you took a couple seconds to go and leave us a rating and maybe even a written review. It helps other people find our show and it makes us really happy too to read your reviews when they come in. So thank you to everyone who has reviewed us before. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our reward tiers there. Yes, you can. And I also want to mention that we have merch. We have very infrequently talked about it on the podcast but on our website under our shop we have t-shirts and tote bags and everything with our logo on it if you are so inclined yeah our new logo i just got in the little mug it's like a camper mug i know it's so cute i need to get that it's really cute it's (laughs) really cute i really like it (laughs) anyway i want to say a huge thank you to these patrons kate patrick tadashi kyle Catherine, linda ethan jeff stefan anna John, Matthew, Mercedes, Maggie, Kevin, Saber Bouquet, and Allison. Thank you so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes, thank you guys so much. And as always, until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Mm-hmm.